Good morning. What a kind gift God has given us to be able to join together and learn from his word today. Um, We're truly surrounded by his goodness every moment, aren't we? The fact is, for those of us who have Jesus, who have our sins exchanged for the righteousness of Christ, we have the greatest gift ever. What a joyful hope we stand in every day because of Jesus. As I grow more in my understanding and love for Christ, I see how profoundly patient and kind and merciful the Lord is day after day with me. I want more of him and to be more like him. And someday I know I'll see him. Someday he'll put an end to everything that's wrong. We wait eagerly for that day, and in the meantime, we have a job to do. Others need to know this truth. We can't live with only our own rescue in mind. Isn't it ironic? We are the most globally connected generation that has ever lived, and yet what an overwhelming amount of misinformation there is in the world. There's so much confusion. We have the ability to watch news from anywhere in the world happening in real time with a smartphone in our hand. And people are overwhelmed and questioning, what should we make of it? What can we tell them? This morning, our study will focus on Discipline 3, Ministry. We draw from a letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church that provides an example of effectual Christian ministry. The men and women Paul wrote to were people who first needed rescue from the deception of sin they were enslaved to with the message of the gospel. Then, as we'll see in this letter, they needed encouragement, instruction, comfort, and the reminder of hope, all which was rooted in the same gospel message. The purpose of this lesson, like every other Wellspring lesson, is once again, to equip and encourage you as you shepherd your heart toward Jesus with the word of God so that you live a gospel-transformed life and thus strengthen the church in its gospel purpose. Whether we're talking with believers or unbelievers, we want to be prepared to cut through the confusion of the world with the clear message of the hope of the gospel. Of course, you and I cannot effectively provide help and direction to others if our own hearts aren't properly equipped, can we? That's why, firstly, the faithful woman of God will shepherd her own heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God and, in particular, the Gospel. It's logical, isn't it? I don't want to take important guidance from someone who isn't informed from the truth of the whole counsel of God, or from a person whose emotions, words, or actions aren't consistent with grace's instruction from God's word. And not just that. Consider this. Our credibility is on display in the manner we care for those in our own home and family. Our first line of ministry responsibility is to those we live with, our husband, our children, 
or if we're single at some level, perhaps a roommate. Because how we care for our family truly displays our heart condition. Do you recognize the need to shepherd your heart before life gets hard? And when life gets hard and messy, maybe noisy, overly demanding and expensive and exhausting, and you aren't being affirmed, appreciated, or thanked? How are you doing? Are you eager to shepherd your heart? Guard it from temptation and sin and fuel it by the Holy Spirit to respond with what is honoring to God. Home, in fact, is often the first opportunity for us to encounter various trials. Each day, are you a working example of God's order in ministry responsibilities? This is discipline, too. You see, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and the Word. This doesn't mean our concern is only for our home, but it does mean we don't neglect our family and home responsibilities in order to jump outside and serve others. It isn't one or the other. We do both with ordinate priority and weight. And as seasons of life and opportunities unfold, we might make a choice to step into some kind of formal ministry. Or sometimes ministry steps into us, doesn't it? In fact, it can be the first thing we see when we open our eyes in the morning. Or it might pop up unexpectedly at our door or in a text message or phone call. That's just the way life unfolds. And we want to be ready for it so that with our heart fixed on God and keeping that God-given ministry within our home a priority, we as faithful women of God can step into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at five ministry truths that will better help us to understand how the Lord would have us minister to the people he has placed in our lives. But let's take a moment and pray first. I thank you, sweet Jesus, for what you have done for us, for what you are doing in us, for your work that never stops. Allow us, I pray, to examine ourselves in the light of your word this morning. Show us where we fall short of your design for ministry and the example we must be to others. And by your grace, grow us in obedience to the gospel that you have called us to believe and to make known to others. Change us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit according to your word so that we can do the things you have revealed in your word as we pursue living in obedience for your glory. Amen. So if you haven't yet, please open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll be reading the entire chapter first, and then we're going to focus primarily on verses 5 through 10, Paul's example of effectual ministry. While you're turning there, I want to give you some background from Luke's account in Acts 17. 
This was the second missionary trip Paul had made. His traveling companions were Sylvanius, also known as Silas, and Timothy. In Acts 17, 1 through 3, we learned that they walked about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. They passed through the town of Amphipolis and may have spent the night there. They went on through Apollonia. Perhaps they spent another night there. Perhaps. And then they arrived at the bustling port of Thessalonica. What Paul typically did when he went to a city was find the Jewish synagogue and engage. He did just that in Thessalonica, and we're told that for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them, explaining and giving evidence from the Old Testament scriptures that the promised Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, when it says that Paul was there three Sabbaths, that doesn't mean that Paul wasn't there any longer than three weeks. But we do know that he went into the synagogue explaining the scriptures only three weeks, only three Sabbaths. On three occasions, he explained that Jesus is Messiah, and he had to come to suffer and to be raised from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. He gave them the gospel, saying, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, the Christ. The impact the gospel had on the city was significant. It infuriated the Jewish community, and a great sifting by God began. And thus, Acts 17.4 tells us the first church of Thessalonica was birthed. A great multitude of God-fearing Greeks believed the gospel, and not a few of the leading women. Let me draw a mental picture of that for you. A bunch of diverse, messy people with all kinds of challenges and personal baggage turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and became a church. Wow. Enraged at the conversion of these people, the synagogue Jews stirred up the community and basically drove Paul out of town. They began a tenacious persecution against Christian believers. And so now, Paul is writing to them about a year later from Corinth. So let's follow along, if you would please, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So now let's turn our focus on verses 5 through 10. Um, We're going to peek a little bit at chapter 2, but the truths of this lesson really are going to unfold logically, almost seamlessly, so I'll point them out to you as we begin begin each of the five points. Um, Let's start with number one. The first point on your handout is Paul's description of ministry's message. Paul says in verse five, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. Notice the word for that begins this verse. It's referring back to a description of the people he's writing to in verses 1 through 4. He identifies them as a called-out people in Thessalonica, the church. Paul says he's thankful for them, prayerful for them, and constantly thinking about them because of their conspicuous change. He has in his mind, as he writes to them, their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these were evidences of their heart change. He knows for sure by these tested outward signs that there has been a true inward heart change. These faithful men and women are among the chosen of God, saved by his grace through the gospel. We want to understand when we talk about ministry, there's only one message that has the power to make that kind of transformation. Only one message can turn a heart to the hope we have in Christ through saving faith. Paul tells us in verse 5, that is the gospel message, which is point number one. Ministry's message must include the gospel. It must include the gospel. Clearly, in this chapter, Paul is describing his ministry of evangelism to the Thessalonians. But later on in his letter, you'll notice there's a broad spectrum of the Christian life that Paul is ministering to them about. He encourages them gives warnings, commands, and instructions, but the gospel is where he began, and all of his communication is rooted in the gospel. Reminding them of the gospel at the beginning provides a kind of purpose statement which has the effect to establish and steady their faith and growing obedience. We will see later on that the gospel was the motivation for Paul's exemplary work among them, and frankly, it's the stimulus for this particular follow-up care and discipleship that we benefit from today in his letter. So let's talk for a moment about the scope of the gospel. 
On page two of your handout, there's a chart. It has several passages of scripture, and they demonstrate Paul's use of the gospel as he discipled believers in his letters. I want you to notice from these verses that Paul used the gospel more broadly than evangelism. And as you read these later on your own, take notice of who the audience is and what the text informs that the gospel accomplishes in the lives of those who believe. Milton Vincent uses some of the same passages in his book, A Gospel Primer. In fact, listen to how he summarizes the role of the gospel in the life of believers. It's on page three of your handout, you can follow along. The New Testament teaches that Christians ought to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. In fact, in the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells the believers in the church that he was anxious to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Of course, he was anxious to preach the gospel to the non-Christians at Rome, yet he specifically states that he was eager to preach it to the believers as well. <clears throat> to the Corinthian Christians who had already believed and been saved by the gospel, Paul says, I make known to you the gospel which you have believed. He then restates the historical facts of the gospel before showing them how those gospel facts apply to their beliefs about the afterlife. This is actually Paul's approach to various other issues throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. In most of Paul's letters to churches, sizable portions of them are given over to rehearsing gospel truths. For example, Ephesians 1 through 3, it's all gospel. Colossians 1 and 2, it's gospel. Romans 1 through 11, it's gospel. The remainder of such books show specifically how to bring those gospel truths to bear on life. Re-preaching the gospel and then showing how it applied to life was Paul's choice method for ministering to believers, thereby providing a divinely inspired pattern for me to follow when ministering to myself and to other believers. You see, the gospel is effectual. That is, it is the core of what successfully produces a gospel-transformed life and ministry in Christ. As such, it has a very broad scope. Paul clearly used the words of the gospel to evangelize, but it was never left behind after coming to faith. Which brings us to the next blank on your outline, page three. The gospel must be preached to unbelievers with the hope that they will believe. And... The gospel must be preached to those who are already in the faith. Because remembering and including the gospel to those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ brings comfort and hope to one another. That certainly doesn't mean that we neglect anything else in the word. God's word is full of promises, instructions, and comforts, as well as commands to obey. We must understand, however, 
that the gospel is foundational to these things because we can't make claims to God's promises, comforts, or hope outside of a gospel-changed relationship through faith in Christ. External obedience to God's commands and instructions outside of a gospel-transformed heart is merely moralism. Because our biggest need is still faith in the acceptable work of God's Son to remove our sins. The gospel is foundational not only to salvation, but to all aspects of our Christian life. And the gospel puts God's character on display for us. We see God's love and justice most clearly at the cross of Christ. We understand his loving kindness, his mercy, and his power. The wonder that he would choose me, that he would choose you. Out of billions of people on this earth to reveal his life-saving gospel, that grows my understanding of him and frankly drops me to the floor in reverence and thanksgiving. And it sets us on a path of assurance that God is at work, even in trials, for our good, to make us more like Christ, to purify our faith, and to bring Him glory. So our message and ministry to others must include the gospel too. And if that's true, then what must we know? We must know the gospel. That's why in your homework this week you were asked to write it out. We all need to get fluent with this message so we aren't fuzzy about what we call the gospel when we speak it. That may take some more practice for some of us. So let's strive to be clear. What do we mean when we say the gospel? On one hand, it can be as succinct as God saves sinners. We read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Those are the core truths of the good news. But when we're ministering with the gospel, we'll also want to include some context and talk about what is implied from those core truths. As we present this unique message of truth to those who are deceived by sin, we want to talk about God's right to rule in our lives and the judgment we deserve because of sin. We'll talk about what Christ accomplished at the cross and what the gospel does in the life of a believer and the great hope and promises we have of eternal life with God that deliver us from the confusion of this world order and the fear of death. Listen on any Sunday to the communion messages. The gospel is always clearly explained from the passages of scripture. You'll also find included in your handouts some additional tools to help you keep growing in your understanding and communicating of the gospel. Incorporate the gospel into your worship and prayers of repentance and thanksgiving. Speak it in your home 
to your children or to your grandchildren, to friends. Listen to others that speak the gospel to you. Become a clear and easy speaker of the gospel so that you will be prepared to share this good news of peace with God because this is the only message that changes hearts and that changes lives forever. And when we remember who God is and the offensiveness of our sin to him and that Christ suffered so that our sin could be forgiven and that he rose from the dead so that believers are freed from sin's enslavement and that we can walk in newness of life those are the truths that soften our hearts to repent it helps us grieve over the wrath of God that Jesus endured for us thinking about our sin in light of the cross grows our love for Jesus and the gospel prepares us to fight our sin and to obey God's commands keeping the gospel central gives us hope it helps us to remember that we are saved by grace we are not under condemnation because Jesus bore all of the condemnation we deserve we are deeply loved by our God and we see that in sharpest focus in the gospel. Our relationships need the gospel too. In fact, it belongs at the center of our relationships, just as it was for Paul's. You see, if I'm pointing others to align with my suggestions or my ways, instead of pointing them to the gospel as the motivation for XYZ, I'm only pointing them in another of many directions away from the cross, which is, in essence, pride and idolatry. Instead, we want to be looking for ways to encourage others with the gospel, and we want to have hearts that are hungry to hear it ourselves. Give consideration to how you can include the gospel. For example, at your next play date, maybe your social media posts or email exchanges with someone. Be deliberate with the gospel. It takes practice to do this. In the midst of loving one another, we want to bring the gospel because that is where our hope is. It's where we're drawn back to the lover of our souls and we don't ever want to bring the gospel without being compassionate, without being sympathetic, without being concerned about the person. And in verse 5 of that first chapter, Paul makes this point clear. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of man we proved to be among you for your sake. In this verse, the term just as is a term of comparison. It's acting like an equal sign. Paul says that he, Timothy, and Sylvanus lived and worked among them with attributes consistent with the gospel. 
the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians, certainly is not the same man he was roughly 20 years earlier when we were introduced to him as Saul in Acts chapter 13. Everything about him had changed after he received the gospel. This man who met them in Macedonia was speaking, thinking, and acting enlightened, empowered, and motivated by the Holy Spirit of God, a very different man. Which brings us to point number two, which is page three on your handout. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. An uncommon messenger. Now, as important as the gospel message is, and we've spent a lot of time talking about it already, the content of the gospel was not where Paul is actually focused in the verses of chapters 1 and 2 of this letter. Here, he was focused not on the content of the message, but on the carrier of the message. He wanted to remind them of the kind of messengers who brought the gospel to them. What Paul is saying here is, the messenger of the gospel is conjoined with the gospel message. They share an inseparable, single, life-giving person that is central to their essence, the person of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in verse 5, there are three other characteristics that accompany the gospel message and the gospel messenger. Number one, by God's grace, the gospel came in power. And you can fill this in on your blank, the first bullet point under number two. The message also has the power of God. The messenger also has the power of God working in him. The gospel had birthed new life to Paul, and he was now an agent of the power of God working through him to do what he formerly could never have done in the flesh, that which was pleasing to God. Number two, the gospel came with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers the messenger as he speaks and lives according to God's word. We who believe are promised the gift of the Holy Spirit in us at the moment of conversion. That person of the Godhead is who gives us new birth, a life with the ability for the first time to not sin and to live honoring the word of God. And again, the gospel came by way of God's grace with a third credit to these men, full conviction. That is an unwavering, confident belief that cannot be shaken. Full conviction characterizes the heart of the messenger. The heart of the messenger. Paul demonstrated this by his endurance through persecution. And later on in his letter, we see the Thessalonians demonstrated this too as they endured suffering at the hands of their own countrymen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul provides some content for his claims about himself as a messenger matching the gospel. From this, you and I have a pattern we can imitate in our ministry with others. So on page 4 of your outline, there's a two-column list of examples from chapter 2. It's titled, Paul's Gospel Transformed Life of Ministry. 
Let's look at just a few examples together, and then for the sake of time this morning, you can look at it more on your own in the days to come. Under the first column, fruit of the Spirit in ministry, although Paul had already suffered and been mistreated in the previous town, Philippi, he spoke boldly to them amid much opposition. We pull that out of verse 2, chapter 2. He doesn't change his message or method as Paul delivers the gospel despite adversity. Look at the second column. Paul restrained his flesh in ministry too. There's no error or mistake in his teaching. He's careful and uncompromising of the truth of the gospel. There's nothing impure. His thoughts about them, his motives, his words and deeds are all sincere and honorable. There's no deceit as Paul worked among them. We pull that out of verse 3 in chapter 2. What he says, thinks, and does is deliberately focused on what is pleasing to God. The Spirit of God is powerfully bearing good fruit in him and restraining fleshly desires that don't match up with the gospel. For example, we see Paul isn't trying to please men. By this, I mean he isn't trying to fit into worldly opinions, desires, and interests to charm them. Even so, he's gentle with these people. He doesn't handle them roughly. In fact, Paul describes himself as gentle as a nursing mother caring for her own infant. He doesn't yield to the temptation of flattering speech to win their hearts. Paul's not the kind of man pursuing his own profit among them, either for money or to gain a personal following of admirers. Nor is his pretext greed, nor is he seeking glory from man. And as the list goes on, don't think this is just Paul on a good day. It's typical of his character in ministry. In 2 Corinthians, he provides a lengthy description in chapter 6 of how he exerted himself to give no cause for offense in order that the gospel not be discredited. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul reminds Timothy of their work together as they suffered greatly under persecution. I would love for you to look at these verses on your own. Consider Paul's example in spite of difficult circumstances as he models the ministry of a gospel-transformed life. Paul is deliberate in his lifestyle by the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. He sets an example for others to follow, and we have this pattern to follow today through the inspired writings of Scripture. Don Carson summarizes it this way, What it means to be a servant of Christ is to be obligated to promote the gospel by word and example. The gospel of the crucified Messiah. That's a high calling. It is uncommon. And we can't do it without the Spirit of God working in our hearts. If we want to be that kind of gospel messenger, then we need to make it our prayer as we seek to bring the gospel into our relationships to help us to rely on God's power. In our conversations, 
in our service, in our time with our children, in our responses. We need to cry out to God, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit. And God, I need full conviction of the power of your word to comfort, to convict, and to transform. So what will it take in your life, in my life, to be this kind of uncommon messenger to the people God has placed or will place in our lives. Let's shepherd our hearts to the word of God and in particular the gospel with our focus on Christ. Let's plead with God for his power. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in our lives. Let's plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform lives through us. Because ministry requires an uncommon messenger, and we have all that we need in Christ to be that messenger. Let's look again at chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians. Paul tells us in verse 6 more about why our example of a gospel-transformed life is crucial to our ministry. He says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul was imitating the character of Jesus. The Thessalonians became imitators of Paul, and therefore they were imitating Christ also. All of this was the work of the Holy Spirit in every new life in Christ. This introduces us to the next blank on our outline, page five. Point number three, ministry involves imitation. Now in the wake of what we just saw about Paul, the uncommon messenger, I think it's noteworthy for us to think about what is implied in this statement about the kind of people Paul labored with in Thessalonica they may not have been easy to work with. Remember what Acts 17 told us? This was a great multitude of people that came to believe. So not only were there a lot of people, there were folks of the same sinful variety of any of us who became something different. So as we think about how Paul was patient, gentle, enduring, humbly encouraging and teaching them. Remember, they were new converts. They'd just been rescued out of slavery to sin and deception. They were being transformed into new creations in Christ. So they needed Paul's example to imitate. Messy people did not excuse Paul from his obligation to think and characterize a gospel-transformed life when he spoke with them, worked with them, thought about them, and labored for their benefit. And then they came to believe. Their transformation involved imitation in three ways. This is the next blank on your outline, page five, under point number three. They were imitators of us and of the Lord. One of the ways we learn to imitate the Lord is by prayerfully and worshipfully meeting God in his word each day. We need those daily alignments because we live in a physical state 
with a remainder of sin warring against us that is very prone to veer us from the straight path of progress in our walk with God. But it's God's intention for us to align our lives with Christ. We can check what grace instructs us to obey and prayerfully strive to live by the power of the Holy Spirit each day of our life. So we see another tool the Lord has given to instruct believers is the example of those in the church who exemplify godly lives consistent with the Bible. Just as Paul was an example to the Thessalonians, we need to have other believers that we can look to that are imitatable. Remember all of the qualities we just looked at that characterized Paul in ministry? God's design in gospel ministry includes the church. When I say the church, I mean you and I, the people that God has called out of the world, and by his grace, we collectively make up the body of Christ. As gospel messengers, you and I are to give one another not only the gospel, but we are to give others an example to follow as we follow Christ. What must we be then? What does having a life that's worth imitating look like? What are some characteristics that mark the life of a godly, imitatable person? You're going to have some time to think about that in your homework this week. Because if someone's going to be imitated, that means they need to be the right kind of example. As we align our life with Christ, the gospel enables us to live a life worth imitating. And that is good news. It's Christ's work in us for the rest of our life. We have those who are examples for us to follow, and there are those that are looking to imitate us in our walk with the Lord. And so it goes in a reproducible pattern that can always be checked against the plumb line of God's word. Now there's another thing that involved imitation when the Thessalonians came to believe. Verse 6 tells us, they immediately faced persecution. In fact, Paul later describes their trouble in chapter 2 as the same kind of tribulation as those in the churches of Judea. And the Thessalonians responded beautifully, validating their new life in Christ. The next blank on your outline is, this imitation will be resolved through tribulation. When the Thessalonians received the word, there was hostile opposition and persecution. But in God's design, by God's plan, the gospel went forward in the midst of tribulation and affliction. Now Paul certainly experienced that as well as the Thessalonian believers, yet tribulation was accompanied by joy produced in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that's the next blank in your outline. Ministry involves imitation that is joyful by the Holy Spirit working in them. The Thessalonians received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, just as Paul did. In this particular verse, we see that this is what Paul has in mind when he's describing how they imitated him. They were joyful because they gained 
a treasure in Christ that no amount of difficulty could ever take away from them. As we remember the gospel, what Christ has done for us, our heart response will have that kind of joyful first love too. Let's plead with God to make us imitators of Christ so that we will be this kind of joyful example to others. When hardship comes into our lives and the world seems so very confusing and out of control, there's still joy because there's a treasure in Christ that no amount of difficulty can ever take away from us. And others can imitate that as we point them to the cross of Christ as our source of joy and hope. And here we are back at the gospel again. The gospel has the power to transform the heart of a man who becomes an uncommon messenger of this remarkable message so that he lives as an example of Christ that is imitatable. Which brings us to our next blank, number four. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Let's look again at those verses 6 and 7 out of chapter 1. It says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So the life that is imitatable is also an effective life. It's a life that God uses to multiply ministry. The Thessalonians became imitators for a reason. The so that at the beginning of verse 7 indicates that there's a purpose coming. You became imitators so that you became an example. Do you see the chain reaction? It's the effectual work of the gospel, and this is where we need to set our sights in gospel ministry. If we step into someone else's life simply for the purpose of being an example for them to follow as we imitate Christ, as good as that may be, we're still missing something. We want to not only be an example to those in our life, but also to help them to grow into being examples for others. And this is what we see described in verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. This is what we mean by effective lives. Remember, they had just heard the gospel for the first time about a year before this. But now the word of the Lord has gone forth, not only in their local area, but it says, in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. And the effects of this, so that we have no need to say anything. Do you see what Paul is saying? The great preacher Paul can't say anything more. Their gospel proclamation and their example was so effective. Their lives were so thoroughly transformed as believers that by the time Paul got there, he had nothing to add. Our last principle, number five, unpacks from verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. 
For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Think about this for a moment. Is it possible to not be a Christian and pray? Is it possible to not be a Christian and go to church? Is it possible to not be a Christian and read your Bible? Is it possible to not be a Christian and evangelize? The answer is, a Christian lifestyle can be fabricated. But ministry labors for nothing less than repentance, which is the last blank, point number five of your handout. Ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. We want to be careful as we walk alongside others as we shepherd our children's hearts, as we minister to those in the church, that we don't fall into giving or taking formulistic approaches to sanctification or rituals that attempt to correct habits rather than address areas of sin in our life. And here's why. True Christian repentance isn't just learning to play nicely with others. It's an inner working heart change. Repentance cries out in agreement with God and eagerly turns from sin in utter dependence on the working of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to God's word. True repentance cooperates with the work of the Holy Spirit, diligently watching over the heart. So more than the external evidence, which is the fruit of becoming holy, the source, the heart, is what God is after, which means it must be our ministry goal also. So let's examine what verses 9 and 10 tell us about the Thessalonians. It begins, They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. The Thessalonians were explaining what had happened to them. Paul had a wide open entrance, a welcome path into their lives. They reported that Paul's gospel ministry was well received. This was the first step in the delivery process of new birth. Some people in Thessalonica with hardened hearts had not welcomed the inseparable messenger and message. They were hostile, either openly or passively. But the men and women Paul is writing to had welcomed the messenger and the message. They came to understand that for their tremendous benefit, Paul came to deliver good news of hope and rescue from sin and peace with God. Now, everyone in this room has heard the gospel multiple times. But let me ask you, what kind of a hearer are you when you're reminded of what Christ has done for you? Do you need a heart check in this area? If you find yourself treating the gospel like background noise 
or annoyed by friends who keep the gospel central in their relationships, there is a great danger lurking. A welcomed gospel message is effectual in the life of an unbeliever because it's the first step to salvation. And a welcomed gospel message in the life of one already in the faith provides benefits such as endurance, steadfastness, comfort, hope. You and I also need to welcome the gospel for its ongoing benefit in our lives. Let's look at what Paul says about an effectual message in the remainder of that sentence, starting with the second part of verse 9. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. They turned to God from idols. What's that called when someone turns? It's repentance. That's right. The report was ultimately about how they repented. You see, Paul's whole goal of being received as a messenger was so that they would receive the message he had for them. Repent and turn to the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. They turned from sin to a new master. That's gospel ministry. This is what we mean when we say that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. And that is how it should look for us as we minister to others too. We must proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, laboring for nothing short of repentance. And in our relationships with those in the faith, as we fortify our friendships, we use the gospel. We want to help others recognize when sin is involved and co-labor for heart repentance. That's effectual ministry. Its fruit is a gospel-transformed life. And as we said at the beginning, we give the gospel with words, a clear message that is complete and accurate. Some of us, for fear of man, perhaps not wanting to offend the other person or not wanting to look out of step, might be inclined to think, I need to build a really strong relationship and show the love of Christ. But then we just never get around to actually sharing the gospel. We can't be satisfied thinking, I may not have given them the gospel, or I may have softened it a bit, but at least I was really loving. A fuzzy gospel is no gospel. We also can't be satisfied with a hit-and-run approach. What I mean by that is we're very focused on being sure we give out the gospel without necessarily being concerned with how we give it. We can't be satisfied with thinking, I gave them the gospel. Maybe I was a little harsh, but at least I gave them the gospel. So what do we need to be doing? We give the gospel with clear and accurate words, and we impart our lives, never disconnected, patiently, kindly, caring for people and honoring the gospel for the treasure it is and the power it alone possesses to change hearts. 
We join the gospel content and gospel care together because they're effective together as we labor for nothing less than repentance. What characterized the Thessalonians' repentance? Look at verses 9 and 10. It says they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. They served God and waited for Jesus' return. If ministry labors for nothing less than repentance, that means we labor for transformation of life. We labor to see people become servants of the Lord who long for Jesus' return. And remember, all this is to be done gently, like a nursing mother, not being harsh, not being abrasive. As Paul passes the baton of gospel ministry in his final letter to Timothy, he writes again, emphasizing the kind of gospel messenger that the Lord loves to use. You find this in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance. It's our responsibility and privilege as those who are under grace to be that kind of messenger. Not quarrelsome, but kind, patient, teaching and correcting with gentleness. That's the kind of mom God loves to use in bringing children to repentance. And if we're going to be that kind of women, we come back to discipline one. We shepherd our hearts. We shepherd our hearts because we understand how important it is for us to step into the relationships in our homes and in our church and in the world with the right message and being the right messenger. Our trials and the changing times we live in are ripe with opportunities to minister to others with the good news of the gospel. Our hope is not in this world or world leaders, or especially not in our own fleshly wisdom. We can shepherd others in the church with the gospel and those outside of a life with Christ with the gospel, always with the goal of a repentant heart turning to Christ. Would you pray with me? I'm going to pray according to Paul's letter from Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 at the end. Father God, we thank you for sending your Son. Give us courage, accuracy, and clarity as we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Help us by your Spirit to live gospel-transformed lives as we live to share the message and the example of your saving grace with kindness, patience, and gentleness so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Equip us through your power as we humbly labor for this, striving with your strength that works powerfully in us with the goal of changed hearts that turn to you from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for your Son from heaven. It is because of him we pray. Amen.